The Politics of Sound with Ian Carnegie. I think you're in the right place then. My guest this month is the Conservative MP for Malden in Essex, John Whittingdale. In addition to his parliamentary passions, he's a great fan of music and the arts and is well known for his love of heavy rock music. I met up with John at his Westminster office to discuss all of these things and, of course, what inspires him both politically and musically on this, The Politics of Sound. Your original ambition was to be an astronaut. <laughs> you, you must be enjoying the 50th anniversary celebrations currently ongoing. Oh, indeed. And I can remember um, watching very early footage of the moon landing. Um, I suppose I was, well, I was nine at the time, but I do remember cut And I kept a cuttings book with all the clippings of you know, the, all the Apollo missions. But... Um, I mean, obviously, that was a world-changing event. You were educated at Winchester College mm. and studied economics at University College in London. Would life have been easier if you'd headed for a career in the city at this point rather than politics? Well, I mean, I did briefly go into the city, but only after I'd already spent a little time in politics. And the problem with politics is it is addictive. And I got hooked. So when I left, having been what was called a special advisor in the Department of Trade and Industry to go into the city, and I went to uh, work on privatisation around the world with Oliver Letwin, who's now, of course, one of my colleagues. We shared an office together. But I missed politics. Uh, And I'm afraid that having sort of had that experience of working uh, for very senior members in government, I missed it so much that I lasted for about six months and then we came back into politics. A common theme among the guests on The Politics of Sound is their citing of Margaret Thatcher, either as an inspiration to continue her work or to oppose her legacy. Did you get into politics partly because of Margaret Thatcher? Yes. Um, I mean, both because when she became leader of the party, I was about 14, 15, and I remember I had an interest in politics, but not great. But I do remember... Um, finding the sort of things she was saying very uh, persuasive, uh, very powerful, and that encouraged my interest. And then I was just incredibly lucky because I went to work before university uh, as a sort of messenger boy for the Conservative Party, but I met her a couple of times. And then I How went. So? How did you I mean, meet because her? I was asked to go and deliver things to her door. I mean, she was living in Flood Street in Chelsea. She wasn't Prime Minister. She was leader of the opposition about to become Prime Minister. And I mean, I only just sort of said hello a couple of times. But then after I left university, I went back and I was asked to go on her election bus during the campaign to act as a sort of travelling researcher. And so I got to know her a little bit then. And I did that two elections in a row. And then, as I said, when I was at the city, I'd been there six months and I got this call already missing politics. And I got a call from a friend of mine who was working in Downing Street. And he said, well, I've done four or five years. It's time I moved on. Um, I just wondered if you'd be interested in coming to become political secretary of the prime minister. Well, 
you know, I mean, once I picked myself up, uh, of course I said that I'd love to do it. And that was what I did next. So I worked for her for four years, three years prime minister, and then continued work, well, continued keeping in close touch with her afterwards. Those years as political secretary to Margaret Thatcher coincided with the last years of her premiership and indeed the year following her resignation. That must have been an extraordinary experience to be so close to Margaret Thatcher during that historic time. It was, and and very close, because in those days, the, the personal staff of the Prime Minister was much smaller than it is today. So literally about probably half a dozen of us who sort of saw her on a daily basis. And it was a very difficult time. I mean, you, you could feel uh, the sort of mounting opposition, both within the party and outside. And things were going wrong. We had the poll tax, we had the rows about Europe, people leaving the government. Uh, there was a sort of feeling that things were coming to a crunch. And then, of course, the actual defeat of her was very emotional for her. Um, she'd been a prime minister for 11 years. Um, and it was her life. I shouldn't have anything else. Uh, and therefore, you know, she found it very distressing. And I was the one person who left with her because the rest of her staff were all civil servants. So I was the one who left with her and had to try and help her set up a new life, essentially. In her autobiography, The Downing Street Years, you were mentioned as a guest at a select dinner party held at Chequers during the time of the leadership election prompted by the standing of Michael Heseltine. Did you believe that she could win right up to the end? Yes. Um, I wasn't a member of Parliament, but um, I shared an office with her parliamentary private secretary who was running her campaign. And I mean, he, as it turned out, got it completely wrong. But he was assuring us that she would win comfortably. Uh, and he kept saying, you know, I've got the numbers here. Don't worry, it's absolutely fine. Um, I mean, what he did not take account of was that people lied. Uh, I'm afraid, as we now know, you know, leadership contests for in political parties, everybody lies. But no, he took at face value people who were saying, oh, yes, of course, of course we'll support the Prime Minister. And actually, they had no intention of doing so. So his figures were wildly wrong. Did she countenance defeat at that point? I think she was a bit worried, but I mean, she was reassured by the, the reports she was getting. Um, and she... To some extent, she regarded it as a bit of a distraction. I mean, she was the most senior, long-standing leader in the Western world. She was very close to George Bush, who'd taken over from Ronald Reagan. She, there were huge challenges. There was the invasion uh, of Kuwait by Iraq. Um, she was involved in world affairs. She'd become very close to Gorbachev. had the fall of the Soviet Union taking place. And to have to defend her leadership in a challenge against somebody at home, I think she found well, very frustrating um, and rather a distraction, um, which is perhaps why she didn't devote as much attention to it as she should have done. How was working with her immediately following her departure? She, oh, was, she was very emotional. She was upset. I mean, she, was, she was upset and she was angry. I mean, she felt betrayed. Um, and she was very angry, particularly with the people who she had counted on as being her supporters in the cabinet, who then all turned on her and said, you had to go. She described it as treachery with a smile on she his did. face. She did. And you know, I mean, the, the flashing eyes and the 
suppressed anger there was real. I, I saw it. Uh, but also she was very emotional. I mean, she literally not just lost the job she'd been doing seven days a week for 11 years, but she lost her home at the same time, and she lost 90% of her staff. I mean, I was practically the only one left. Um, and so she was you know, bereft, and she depended upon a small number of very close friends who sort of stepped in, people like Alistair McAlpine, who, uh, Lord McAlpine, who um, lent her a house from which to work and that kind of thing. You would see her daily? Yes, yes. And you never knew quite what you would encounter? Um, I mean... I mean, she was emotional, no question. I mean, she was still very loyal uh, to her staff. Um, she was still a formidable uh, person, and I still loved working for her. And, and even though she was no longer Prime Minister, um, she still had a lot of the authority. You know, she'd been this huge figure that had dominated the political stage for so long. So she had a constant stream of people wanting to see her, and I used to oversee all those meetings. Uh, she also, of course, still had full protection, um, which she had till she died, because you know, there was always that chilling remark of the IRA after the Brighton bombing, where they said, you were lucky this time, we only have to be lucky once. So there was that continuing threat uh, to her, which meant she had protection throughout her life. And, and that, you know, is quite limiting in a way. You know, she, she couldn't go anywhere without advanced teams checking it out and that kind of thing. Had she been Prime Minister now, how do you feel that she would have handled the Brexit question? Very differently. Um, she would have, I mean, you know, famously, early on in her premiership, when she went in with the handbag and said, I want my money back. Um, I mean, she was, you know, a hugely strong personality. And she would have, rather than the way in which the negotiations have been handled this time, which has almost been us going in saying, please, you know, we're sorry to be doing this, please, can we have as much as possible as you're willing to give us? Um, I think Margaret Thatcher would have gone and said, right, we're leaving, Um you know, we're happy to still maintain a deal with you. What have you got to offer us? Um, and I think that would have altered the whole dynamic of the negotiation. Brexit has obviously created division, both within the country and within Parliament. Focusing on your own party, John, do you believe that there is a deal that can unite it in a meaningful way? Oh, well, I sincerely hope so, because I think at the moment the Conservative Party is facing the greatest threat in you know, 40, 50 years, um, particularly with the sense of anger and frustration in the country at the failure to deliver Brexit, which amongst Conservative supporters has been translated into transferring their support to the Brexit party. And, you know, it is hugely divisive. So this has to be settled for, you know, for the sake of the country uh, and to try and then bring people back together. What sort of deal would you personally like to see? Well, I, I would like a deal. I'd like a, a, a comprehensive trading agreement, which you know we both sides agree that we will do. We won't impose barriers or tariffs or anything, and have maximum freedom to trade. But I don't want any longer to be subject to any compulsion from rules set in Brussels enforced by the European Court of Justice. Um, it's that which you know I campaign to to get away from. 
you work very hard in Parliament. It's a seven-day-a-week job. Mm. You've talked about that. But you also like to relax. You have a well-documented love of music. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But before that, you're also something of a connoisseur of films, and I think particularly horror films, from what I understand. Is that so? Well, no, I mean, the, that was written up a bit. I mean, yeah, I do. I, I love movies, uh, but all sorts of movies, including horror films. Uh, you know, I mean, I... My tastes are very broad, uh, but in the same way, you know, we'll come on to music. But in the same way, if you have a particular genre which is unusual, like heavy metal, people focus on that and say, "Oh, you're the heavy metal fan." Well, actually, I like all sorts of music, but it is true I do like heavy metal. Equally, in films, you know, that gets attention because I suppose it's an unusual thing for for an MP. Do you have a particular? Few films that you absolutely love. Oh, back yes. to again and again. What would that oh, be? Oh, I mean, my, my desert island films. I've spent many, many hours um, thinking about. And my favourite movie is The Godfather, which is quite a sort of common movie to be chosen. Not The Godfather Part Two. No, Part One. Although Part Two is a great, great film. Uh, but then I like science fiction, so I put in The Matrix in there. Um, I like classic films, so I put in Kind Hearts and Coronets. Uh, horror films. I mean, Sin City is a terrific film. Is this the film that is the look of it it's is almost black, black and white, white with splashes of colour? I mean, the 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 one of the villains has a yellow face, and obviously the red is from blood is there. But it's a, it's a Robert Rodriguez film, and it's got a extraordinary collection of the cast. So main stars are people like Bruce Willis. Uh, Jessica Alba, um, but all sorts of people sort of walk on and walk off. Um, I, I'm Elijah Wood, who you know is most famous as Frodo in The Hobbit, plays a psychopathic killer. <laughs> it is an extraordinary film. I think it's time to turn to your passion for music. Will a visit to the Politics of Sound record shop represent a particular pleasure? Everything you could possibly imagine is in stock. Oh, God, I'd spend hours and hours. I mean, one of my sadnesses is that, of course, I grew up in an age when record shops existed. One of the joys of record shops was that you could go in and spend an hour just browsing through albums and finding things that you'd never heard of or encountered. I'm Part of the difficulty now is that, you know, you either have things recommend you either stick with the artists you already know and love or sometimes you get the sort of well if you like this have you tried this but it's much harder to discover completely new and different uh artists did you love the days when you used to be able to go into a record shop a there was the browsing mm. b it was the whole ceremony yeah. going in which was fantastic yeah, absolutely. saving up your money to buy yeah. an album which seemed terribly expensive but yes. it's probably about two pounds fifty but also, I think they used to have booths where you could actually yeah. try before you buy. That was a wonderful yeah, thing. absolutely. I think it's time for your visit to our <laughs> own record shop, The Politics of Sound. I hope you enjoy it. So, John, how did you get on in the record shop? Well, I could have spent many happy hours there, but... Um, you asked me just to pick out three albums, each of which means something in terms of they, they've been sort of important in uh, my life. So the first one... Uh, it's, a, it's a classic album with a wonderfully is. gothic and iconic cover with a motorcycle bursting out of the ground in a graveyard. And it is, of course, 
Meatloaf, Bat Out of Hell. 1977 release on the Cleveland label and latterly epic. Meatloaf once said about this album, people either hate Bat Out of Hell or they worship it. I think you're in the latter category. I think I probably am. And it was, I mean, I think the vast majority of people did worship it because I think it held the record for the longest time in the album charts. Um, I don't know if it's it's still the record, but it, it went on for years in the album charts. And it was an extraordinary, iconic album because it was not just a collection of songs. Um, I mean, they told a story, particularly the Bad Out of Hell song itself, uh, and it's immensely dramatic, um, and it has everything. And, and it is still my karaoke number. I have to say not terribly well, because it's very difficult. It, the range is huge. Well, I have to say, I have heard you singing. Have you really? I oh, have. It's, it's on YouTube, and I think it was on the BBC, where you were on with John Pina, I think. Well, that was, yeah, I couldn't hear through the uh, earphones, so I, I, could fa- I, I don't think that's particularly good, but I could, I could, I think somewhere I'll find you a, a karaoke I did. Uh, but it is, you know, it, it is a very difficult song to sing. But few people have the operatic range yeah, of meatloaf. Exactly. And, I mean, you, you're doing fine, and then suddenly you find it jumps an octave. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> sort of squeaking. I mean, it, it, it is a tribute to the power of his voice. And I've seen him sing it, oh, probably seven or eight times. I'm, I'm not sure whether he still could now, because it is, you know, very demanding. The album was not written by him. It was Jim written Steinman. By, by Jim Steinman, the pianist and songwriter, who was a theatrical musicals writer. Mm. Meatloaf met him when he auditioned for a production of More Than You Deserve, and Steinman clearly felt he had sort of found the right voice for his dramatic theatrical style of rock. And they started working pretty soon afterwards. It's got a really musicals sound about it. It's very theatrical, isn't it, the whole album? It is. I mean, the the title track is perhaps most theatrical in that you've got them sort of motorcycle engine revving but then you've got even perhaps even more theatrical and i've seen him do it live with a a, well he's had different female performers but paradise by the dashboard light which is the most wonderful tale of a sort of failed attempt at seduction (laughs) um and do you uh, love me yeah uh Will he be mine forever? And um, stop right there. Yes. (laughs) And I've seen him do that um, with a few different uh, female vocalists on stage. And it's it's always a terrific number to do. There's something of a hysteria about the album, which is rather attractive. The music's been described as a cross between Richard Wagner, the operatic side, Phil Spector, Bruce Springsteen, and American musical theatre... I think someone also described the songs as mini operas. Yeah, I think there's a degree of truth in that. And he went on to do some great albums afterwards, but, I mean, Bad Out of Hell is his masterpiece. Um, I've got several different recordings. I've even got a recording of him doing it with the London Symphony Orchestra. How does that sound? Uh, It's great. And actually, I mean, I, I personally, I like orchestral accompaniment to rock music. I think it does add... Uh, something and and we'll come on to talk about another one very shortly uh, where the same thing but I mean obviously in the case of Bad Out of Hell it wasn't originally with an orchestra but the addition it does it does add something. The song itself the title track was never a single but it was written by Jim Steinman he wanted to write a crash death song and he was very inspired by 
tracks from the 50s, 60s, such as Leader of the Pack and Tell Laura I Love Her. Mm. You obviously know of those tracks as well. Well, Leader of the Pack has also got the motorcycle uh, revving on it. You know how they got yeah. the sound on the album? Do you know how they did no. it? Well, it was Todd Rundgren, who, yeah. the guitarist who produced yeah. it all and took Meatloaf under his wing. And... Uh, they kept saying, I think Jim Steinman during the recording, you still haven't put that sound on. You still haven't put the sound of the motorbike. And he said, do you really need it? In the end, he made the sound with a guitar. This extraordinary pedals yeah. that he was using. But for you, I feel this, you, this is a quite personal song for you in that you've sung it, you know it, and you, I feel you really love it. I do. And I mean, I can, I mean, it's a long song, but I can do probably the first couple of minutes you know sirens are screaming and the fires are howling way down in the valley tonight there's a man in the shadow with a gun hand and blade chaining it's so bright etc i mean it's a it's a terrific song um and i do listen to it quite loudly in the car often and can you play the piano <laughs> part no I, I it's one of my regrets is that i can't play a musical instrument i wish i could well i'm gonna play it now oh great So, John, what's your second album choice? Well, the second is one of the later ones in this man's career. But I discovered that I liked rock music when I was at school and I suddenly heard somebody playing uh, the album Made in Japan uh, by Deep Purple. And I'd never heard anything like it. And, of course, Smoke on the Water being the sort of biggest rock song of all time. And I became a Deep Purple fan. But then... Deep Purple broke up, or at least it moved from Mark II to Mark III or whatever, and Richie Blackmore left, and Richie Blackmore created this new band called Rainbow. Uh, the first album is good, but not terrific. Uh, the second album, Rainbow. I, th I think the second album is the first one credited to just Rainbow. The first one was Richie Blackmore. It was Rainbow. indeed. You're absolutely right. Richie Blackmore's Rainbow was number one, and then Rainbow... Uh, and therefore the album is called either Rising or Rainbow Rising. And, I mean, again, has the most wonderfully dramatic album sleeve. The cover is a terrific pic uh, picture of his clenched fist rising with a clutching a rainbow and a little man in the, in the corner. Um, and it's a fantastic album, but there is one track on it which is just an incredible piece of music, very powerful, uh, and that's called Stargazer. This starts the second side. It does. And it's very interesting in that you were talking about how much you enjoy hearing a rock band with a full orchestra. Indeed. And the song actually features members of the Munich Philharmonic Orchestra to give this massive mm. gothic sound. Yeah. It's also got a very strong Egyptian feel to the song. Do you recognise that? Um, yeah, which isn't the only one of the sort of... Purple Rainbow Catalogue, uh, which occasionally references. It's, it's got all sorts of curious references. It's very... The story is very Tolkien-esque as well. And it's all about wizards and sort of goblins and monsters. Um, and it, 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 it's very 
it's very dramatic. It's very powerful. Um, again, it's just I, you know, I, I will put it on in the car full volume, and it is just the most extraordinary piece. I've I've heard him do it twice. Um, I went to the reunion gigs, which Rainbow did about a year, eighteen months ago, and even though. I mean, Blackmore is losing some of his sort of potency, if you like. It's still an amazing track. And, of course, he, it, whilst Blackmore was performing it last time, um, I'm Ronnie G- James Dio was the vocalist in the original, who sadly is, is dead now. Um, and so you know, I, I regret never heard it, having heard it at the time when it was first done. I'm surprised you never took up the guitar, or did you? Mm, no, I didn't. Um, I... I did, I mean, I briefly learnt the violin, and I do, maybe that's why I like orchestral accompaniment to rock music, uh, but no, I'd love to have been a guitarist. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I have been known to air guitar occasionally. I'm sure. <laughs> the album opens with a track called Tarot Woman, which is unusual because it starts with a long extended yeah. keyboard solo. Mm. Particularly unusual as it's for a Richie Blackmore album where people want to hear... Mm. The guitar, but very soon the band just crashes in, doesn't it? You love that track. I, I actually, and I like that opening. I think the opening is very exciting because it slowly gathers volume, and then, as you say, in comes crashing the guitar. Um, and it, it's a great opening track. I mean, it does actually set off the album. And I mean, I, the first time I heard that album, I was completely uh, bowled over. And I mean, this is perhaps an omission, but I mean, I actually think Rainbow's better than Purple. Well, it was voted the greatest heavy metal album of all time in October 1981 by readers of which heavy rock magazine, do you think? Uh, Kerrang? Kerrang is correct. Did you used to read this? I did used to read Kerrang, (laughs) yeah. certainly and I think latterly there was always this great debate at school whether you liked Deep Purple or whether you liked Led Zeppelin which which would you say oh, which camp would you in I mean actually I liked both I mean funnily enough in my, when I was at school the big difference was the sort of more traditional heavy metal so you'd be talking Purple Sabbath and the other extreme would be Yes Yes, uh, well, and possibly even Genesis. Uh, Did you like all of that? No, I wasn't a Yes or Genesis fan. I was a, a Zeppelin, Purple, Sabbath fan. If you had to choose between Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin? Purple. Beatles or Rolling Stones? Stones. Why? Um... I mean, it's just that he- bit, little bit heavier. I mean, the Beatles did some... I mean, firstly, they were you know, ahead of their time in groundbreaking the rest, but I mean, they did some wonderful songs. But they're, uh, you know, they are of their age. Um, and I like a bit more grit. 
Blur or Oasis? I suppose Oasis, even though Blur come from Colchester, which I used to represent. Marmite, love or loathe? Oh, love. Of course. Oh, I'd love Marmite, yeah. <laughs> That's nice. Now, your final album choice is a double album. Featured on the front is a ripped poster of the band in question, and the album is... Well, it's Quo Live. Um, the first band I ever saw perform live was Status Quo. I got to like them because friends of mine at school used to play them incessantly. And I remember it was the end of term. I'd never been to a concert before. And I actually got tickets for two nights in a row at the Hammersmith Odeon to see Status Quo. Which probably cost you the princely sum of about £5. I, I'm... Possibly a little more, but not a lot. Um, you're right. It was, it was, at the time, it felt like a lot. Uh, but it wasn't just that. I mean, I'd never been to London on my own to, before. and I mean, it was a real new experience. And the reason I picked the album is that, actually, it is almost the perfect rendition of the live experience of the band at that time. I mean, you, it does capture exactly what a Quo concert was like not just the sort of raw performance from a stage, but the chant from the audience, which is kept up almost throughout the entire concert. <laughs> Live albums tend to fall into two categories. Those that are fairly heavily edited, they use the original recording just as a basis on which to build, and I think they put overdubs on, and it's a, it's a bit of a cheat, really, but mm. it does sound very nice. And then there's these other albums that are much more the raw recording with a little bit of editing. This seems to take the latter approach to the nth degree. There's no editing at all, it would seem. It's just straight down, this is the recording. I think that's right. And funny enough, I was looking at one or two of the reviews of it, and there are people who say this is the greatest live record ever made. And others are incredibly dismissive. Well, guitarist Francis Rossi described it as the worst album we ever made, but Rick Parfit said there are bits of the live album that give me goosebumps. Yeah. Um, I would not say it was the worst by any means. I mean, I, you know, it, it, is, it is raw, there's no doubt. And I suspect, you know, there are some wrong notes and... I mean, Quo always used to include John Coughlin's drum solo, but, I mean, they're not... He wasn't known as the greatest drummer, but <laughs> it, it, it is the live experience. You listen to that album, and it's as near to actually being there as you can pretty much get. Well, the drum solo comes in the song Caroline, which I know is one of your particular favourites. They wrote that song on a napkin um, in a hotel in Cornwall in a dining room. Did you know that? I didn't know that. <laughs> and it, that song opened every Quo gig yeah. for over 25 years. Yeah. I presume you knew that, but but on one very special occasion, they opened with Rockin' All Over the World, which was, of course... Oh, Live Aid. Yes. Yeah. That was a very moving moment, I think, for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it really did sort of take them beyond the sort of denim-clad male audience into a massive popular band. Um, it was quite a brave decision to open with the, with Status Quo, and actually it worked pretty well. And Rocking All Over the World was the sort of perfect song for that kind of event, because it's, it's very easy to sing along to. It sort of summed up what Live Ed was all about. Uh, but no, it was great. But coming back to that live album, 
it does show a band that is extremely tight, really know their craft. And as the person who introduces the band, they know how to rock, they know how to roll, and they know how to boogie. Indeed. And, and it was, I mean, Francis Rossi was, is still a, a great performer. He's quite funny. You know, he, he tells jokes, he ribs the crowd. But then the relationship he had with Parfit was incredibly close. And they did. They used to do that famous sort of movement. And Lancaster, when he was a bass player with them, the three of them would stand in a row and their guitars would simultaneously go up and down as they, as they played the famous you know, three chords. <laughs> uh, and you know, he, 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 they were very tight, as you said. Now, John, we've talked about your <laughs> love of karaoke. We are going to have the greatest grand finale of great grand finales now, in that I think you're going to perform something for us with the Politics of Sound band. Well, I'm going to just do a little bit, because it's a very long song, as we discussed, and it's also very difficult. Uh, but it's such an amazing song. Uh, and I have done it before. Um, not always terribly successfully, uh, but hopefully it will go better today. John, I hope you've enjoyed being on the show. Thank you for being on The Politics of Sound. Thank you. Sounds are screaming and the fires are howling way down in the valley tonight. There's a man in the shadow with a gun in his hand and a blade shining oh so bright. There's evil in the air and there's thunder in the sky and there's a killer on the bloodshot streets. Deadly arise, you know, I swear I saw a young boy. God, he was starting to foam in the heat. Oh, baby, you're the only thing in this whole world that's pure and good and right. And wherever you are and wherever you go, there's always gonna be some light. Thank you to my guest, John Whittingdale. Well, that's it for this month. The researcher was Nigel Rippon, and he was also responsible for the fabulous guitar playing. The Politics of Sound is written and performed by me, Ian Carnegie. Don't forget that you can also follow all the latest news on Twitter via politics underscore sound. We'll see you next month, where my guest will be former Labour MP and CEO of UK Music, Michael Duggar. 
Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.